Okay, if you've got a Bible handy, let's get going. So, um, for those of you who've been along with us across the course of Easter, we've just spent the last few weeks, it's five sermons in total, that we've just spent looking at the cross through a group of biblical pictures that all exist, are all given to us, these are God's pictures given to us to explain just what it is that the cross is accomplishing, specifically what it is that Jesus has done for us as our substitute. Um, The message of the cross is that Jesus died in our place and for our sins, and as a result of his being our substitute, we are now forgiven, uh, we are reconciled, we are made righteous, we are redeemed, and we are included. How exciting is this message? All in this one day of history, this has happened for everyone who's ever experienced any of these things. And so I, I hope you've found that time well spent. I hope you found these five pictures helpful. I hope, I hope it's um, done the thing of, of shining a light on some way in which God is our saviour that was refreshing to you or new to you or helpful to you. Um, What we're about to do in our sermon series, our next sermon series, which is upcoming, is to pick up the book of Romans again and get our way into Romans 9. I'm very excited. Romans 9 is a densely theological part of the Bible, which is where I'm in my happy place. Um, It's also a part of the Bible I've never actually preached through systematically. done Bible studies in it. I've done individual sermons here and there, but never I've never preached through the book of Romans, so I've never preached through Romans 9 in that way. Really looking forward to that. Um, but we wanted to just hit pause for this one week before we get there and bring our series in the cross to a close. Um, the, the reason for this is that there's an, obvious, there's an obvious thing left to say at the end of that series in the cross. We have, we have said it during the series, but just to spend a week focusing on it, Um, The idea is this, that the cross, that message that we've just been listening to, it calls us to a response. And so surely we have to pause and consider that response. Um, The cross requires an action from us. There's an obvious action. And the action is to reach out to God and to ask him for his forgiveness. Um, to, To ask him to give you the blessings of his redemption that we've just spent so long talking about, well, for just for a month, we've been talking about all of the things that Jesus has accomplished for us, and that's not just a nice set of ideas, that really is um, God meeting our most fundamental needs. We need lots of things in the world, there's lots of things that are important, we need oxygen, we need bread, we need somewhere to live more urgently than those things, we need God as our saviour, that is our most urgent need. Um, and so, we must stop and consider that response in depth. Um, I find the message of the cross is very timely just at the moment. Maybe, um, maybe you've experienced this too. We are living in an age where grace and redemption are being lost in our culture. They're actually on the decrease. Along, alongside the receding influence of Christian faith in society, we have seen a receding influence of grace. And it's, not, it's not that surprising, but it is also shocking. Have you, am I the only one? Have you noticed this trend? Um, it, it turns out that redemption is a very Christian idea. Um, just, just in term one, we ran a discipleship course, and we were teaching people how to, how to communicate the message of Jesus to others. Um, and one of the nights I said to the group, um, that by the way, as you do this, if you try to do this, if you try and start becoming useful you know, to, to other people in the Christian faith, that eventually the day is going to come where you're going to make a mistake and hurt someone's feelings. It's just almost guaranteed. I said, that's okay, because we've got a, a religion of grace, and God's going to forgive you, and you get another chance. Um, and someone in the group spoke up and said, actually, that's pretty refreshing to hear, because these days, if you make a mistake, you get, you get cancelled. 
Do you know what they're talking about? This kind of fear that we all sort of seem to live under of getting caught and then deleted from polite company. Just you aren't, you're just gonna be persona non grata. You're not gonna be welcome here anymore. It sums up a real thing. There's a grace drought going on. Many, many people have rejected the Bible's message claiming that it was intolerant. And what we have got in its place is a rising flood of intolerance like nothing I've ever seen in my lifetime. Right? And so we need this message of the cross because the message of Jesus is good news to anybody who knows that they've got something to be ashamed of. To anybody who has something to hide, who anyone, anyone who knows that they're not perfect, anybody who's afraid of being found out, that's who Jesus is for. Christianity is for the undeserving. And so we've had these five pictures which explain the cross, and now we're going to take this time to examine what it means to respond to the cross, to what God has shown us in his word. And we're going to do it um, by looking at a psalm, a beautiful psalm, a worship song in the Bible. Um, if you have your Bible handy, why don't you turn to Psalm 32, which just shows us how it is we should respond to God's grace. Written by David, I think he knew a thing or two about stuffing up. Yeah, I don't know if that happened before or after this was written. Psalm 32. Let's read the whole thing. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for uh, the wisdom of your word um, given ahead of time in which you meet all our needs. We thank you for the book of Psalms and the way in which it speaks uh, to us and for us in such a unique way and shows us what what healthy worship looks like we pray lord that we would know and experience and do the things described in psalm 32 even tonight spirit would you open your word would you open our hearts before you and would you draw us near we pray in jesus name amen isn't that a, isn't that a, isn't that a cracker of a song it's just the most beautiful thing i got really excited when i read it i read this psalm often while I was just on holidays for the last couple of weeks, just because I enjoyed reading it the first time and I kept going again and again. Psalm 32 begins with a purpose statement, a destination. 
where the psalmist is attempting to lead us to. We know it's, it's, it's King David. This is where he's trying to get us to. We find it in verses 1 and 2. He says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Here is the purpose statement. Here's the intended goal. Here's where um, God wants to get us to. He wants to take us to a place where we would be blessed. And to be blessed by God in Psalm 32 is to know and to receive and to experience the blessing of being forgiven and reconciled. Forgiven and reconciled to the God who made us. That's, that's where God's trying to take us this evening. Can you see that in there? I'm not just making this up. Blessed is the person whose transgressions are forgiven. God wants to give this to you. He wants to forgive your transgressions. Blessed is the man whose sin is covered. God wants to make a covering for your sins to remove their offense. The one whom the Lord does not count their iniquity against. God wants to take you to a place where your iniquity is not counted against you. The one who is uh, in whom there is no deceit, set free from deceit, from falsehood, from pretending. God wants to give this to you. That's the destination. Maybe like you, uh, maybe you're a bit like me. To my ears, that sounds pretty good. I want to go there. That sounds more exciting than anything that I did on holidays, and I did some nice things on holidays. I want to exist in this state of blessedness. Um, of course, we want to go there. And yet, life and people are complicated. We don't always do the smart thing. If this is all true, if this is all real, if this is really where God is in inviting you this evening, we surely have to, we have to just stop for a moment and go, why do I hesitate? Because we hesitate, don't we? Why, why, why am I reluctant to receive grace? Why am I reluctant? Why am I slow to receive experience? Why, when I should be running towards God with everything that I have in order to have these things? Why do I hide from him? Why do I keep him at arm's length at certain times? Why is it there times where I think life would be easier if he were further, further away? If it is possible to have these things, how rich is this group of promises? My sin covered over. I want that. My transgressions forgiven. Why, why if, if, if it's really, truly, actually possible for me to have that, why is it that we aren't all running out right now to receive it this very second? I know we do, we get it some, right sometimes too, but why don't we get it right all the time? If that's so obviously a wonderful thing. Next week, as we begin to unfold Romans 9, actually we'll begin to look at ultimate answers to that question, which are going to melt our brains. Let's leave that till next week. This week, let's, let's keep it in our hearts. And really practical, we'll keep it on the ground. What is happening in our hearts? What's happening in our motivations? When we hear an invitation like that and think, you know what? Maybe not. Maybe not today. What is going on? For some, surely, it is, it's simply the absence of belief. Right? There are those who just do not believe that God will or could give them these things. Great. Yep, that's an option. But there is another significant reason that we will all experience, and I think, it's, I think this is what the psalm is speaking to. It's speaking, it's speaking not to those who don't believe, but to those who, who do believe or who almost believe, and yet are hesitating, right? This is, this is a thing that happens even in the life of Christians, where we find ourselves keeping our distance from God, at least for a time. We, 
Am I the only one who's ever done this? I mean, like, I've just made a, a big muppet of myself. I think my solution to that is just going to be just stop reading my Bible for a bit, right? Just because it, it's, it's a bit uncomfortable. Am, like, I'm the only one? I'm the only one. Okay. No, it's just me. It's cool. You guys are great. I'm, I'm, the, I'm the crazy one. What is going on in our heart when we do that? We've all experienced this. I think it has something to do with our wounded pride. God's invitation to be restored is gracious, yes, but it is also painful and insulting. That's the problem. Because for me to be forgiven comes with a necessary implication. And that implication is, I need to be forgiven. That's, that's not so nice. I prefer it when I'm right. But I'm comfortable with being right. You, you've all noticed. But, but needing, needing to be forgiven, that's uncomfortable. For the Lord to not count my iniquity against me implies I'm guilty of iniquity. I have treated others and God unfairly. For me to be free from deceit, from hiding, from pretending, means I've got something to hide from. That's the, that's the difficult part. This is the hard part. Do I view myself as guilty or innocent before God? And there is something in us, there always has been, and this is true of all people everywhere, forever, where we try to deal with the problem of our shortcoming, the problem of our sin, through self-justification. There is something in the human nature, this is part of what it is to be a fallen human, where we prefer self-justification to Jesus as our justification. It's just, it's just if you were to, here's one, here's the other, which one would you like? I'll take the self-justification, please. That's the one that tastes nicer to me just now. We would rather explain away or, or minimize or externalize our sin rather than own it. Do you, do you know what I mean when I say that? Like, we would rather justify it. We'd rather explain it away. I sinned because Jesse was really mean to me, and it's actually Jesse's fault. We, we, in, fact, in fact, it's a bit harsh calling it sin, isn't it? Because he kind of deserved it. And so, so, so we, we, we minimize... And we externalize our sin. And when we do that, we're being just like our parents, Adam and Eve, who were just the best example of this. All the way back in Genesis 3, we found that this is a part of what it is to be a fallen human. Adam and Eve sin against God, and God comes to confront them. And God says to Adam, Adam, what have you done? Adam says, against you and you only have I sinned. Have mercy on me, O Lord. No, that's not what Adam says. I think, what would the world look like if that was what Adam had said? No, what Adam said was, you see, the problem was the woman who you put here in the garden with me, which is a very bold thing to say to God, isn't it? In the context of Mother's Day, I think it stings just that little bit harder. Adam fails the test. He, he, he fails the turn to God for mercy test. Instead, he tries to self-justify through minimizing his sin and externalizing his sin and blaming his wife. And God himself. Eve doesn't fare much better. God turns to Eve. Okay, Eve, what have you done? It was the devil, says Eve. It wasn't me. The irony of self-justification is that it doesn't justify. Have you experienced this? The, the, the irony of dealing with your sin in that way is that it doesn't deal with your sin. No one has ever experienced the forgiveness of God by denying the problem of their sin. No one has ever been reconciled to God or restored or redeemed by minimizing the significance of their sin. 
what feels like an attempt to run to safety is actually the very thing that's keeping you in danger, right? It's, it's, like, a, it, <laughs> it's like a man holding a loaded grenade which he needs to throw before it goes back, thinking the only thing I can do to keep myself safe is just to hold this thing close. No, no one has ever been justified by self-justification. It's just not an option. If it was an option, we would have a savior other than Jesus. You'd be able to save yourselves. It's just not possible. And so the, this song that we're reading, the next part of this song captures the experience of a person who has experienced conviction, who, who knows that they've got something to be ashamed of, who, who knows that they have sinned before God, who've, who've fallen short. There's something in their, there's something in their life, there's something in, that they've done or thought, or experienced, or had done to them. There's something that, 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 there's a problem that has come between them and God. Someone who knows the guilt and the shame that they carry, and yet who is refusing to bring it to God to be restored. A place, I think, that we have all been at various times in our life. Let's read verses 3 and 4. For when I kept silent... My bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was, was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. This is the irony of the self-justifier. This is the agony of hiding. We think to ourselves, I have this guilt that's uncomfortable. I'm not ready to face that yet. That would be too hard. So all that's left to me is to deny, to minimize, to externalize, problem solved, but oh, we find our conscience won't shut up. And it's an agony. It is, it is not a pleasant experience. When I kept silent, he says, my bones wasted away through my groaning all the day long. His, his conscience, conscious waking hours are being spent in the awareness of there's something wrong, there's something amuck, and it needs dealing with, and I'm not willing to deal with it. And it, my, my strength is being sapped like somebody who's it's being dried up like somebody's stuck in the desert with no water, right? It is ruining my life to hide. Have you experienced this moment, this, this, this torture of hiding? What, se what seemed like a, a plea for safety, a, a plan to give me comfort and security, has actually resulted in torture. We do a ridiculous thing. We, we wallow in our guilt when it is so unnecessary to do so. I would wager that if you think about it for any length of time, you'll find that, like me, you have a cupboard of shame. That's what I call it, the cupboard of shame. It's like there's this part of my secret being in which is stored all of the unresolved failings, shortcomings, all the embarrassing things that I've ever done, all the shameful things I've ever done, all the ways in which I have hurt others and made a muppet of myself. Uh, things that I don't, I don't even like to look at them myself. I certainly don't want you to see them. The, the, the things that, like, when I'm really upset and I'm trying to go to bed at night, there's the things that my brain helpfully says, here's Matt, is a, is a slideshow of just how much of a screw-up you are. Let me display this for your enjoyment. Thank you, brain. I'm really glad that you do that. Are you, am I the only one? Like, that person was really nice to you and you didn't notice, and then you, you, you called them, a, like, an insulting name, and then they cried, and then everyone knew you were the guy who makes the nice people cry. Man, I wish that was a joke. <laughs> I'm glad that most of you didn't meet me in my teens and early 20s. There's an important insight here for us in, in verse 4. 
says this. David, David, David connects the problem of, of guilt and shame with God. He puts them together. His, his, so, so sometimes in life we disappoint ourselves, right? You have, you have your own expectations of who you're going to be and how you're going to act in the world. You've kind of created your own internal law. You said, I'm going to live up to my own expectations of me, and we fall short of those. We do. And that's a real problem. It's really difficult when that happens. But that is a smaller problem than the problem of the cross, than the problem that the cross is, is resolving. Um, sometimes we disappoint other people. That goes in the cupboard of shame too, right? Once again, we, we, we fail to live up to other people's expectations of us. We let them down. We disappoint them. We hurt them. That's a problem. It is a smaller problem than the problem that the cross is fixing. It turns out that our biggest problem with sin is that it is an offense to God. And what you're experiencing in, in the agony of hiding is something that your soul knows very well, which is that I have wounded the Lord with my sin. That's, that's what your soul is, is hiding from. That's the harder thing to see. David says, when I hid, when I remained silent, day and night, your hand, meaning God's hand, was heavy upon me. That's the wrestle. God, the Holy Spirit, is knocking at the door of your heart. Let me in. I've got some stuff to do. We've got to have that chat. No, thank you. I don't need that because it was Jesse's fault, as we've established. That's the agony. That's the conviction. That's the difficulty. That is what is sitting heavy on you. That is what is drying up your strength, as in the heat of summer. Ultimately, it is God who is our judge. And we stand naked and exposed before him, opened up. And to be seen by the one who knows all things is an uncomfortable experience. I can hide from you. I can, I can have a kill switch linked to my browser history so that when my heart stops beating, it's gone. And you'll never know. Right? I, can, I can hide behind the achievements of my career. Well, most of you can. I can't. I haven't done much. I, I, can, I, can, I can lie to you. I can't lie to him. I can't lie to him. God is my judge. And that's a dilemma. Now look, some people, all they know about God is that he is the judge. And that's a distorted view of him, right? If you know God as, as judge but not as redeemer, you don't have the whole biblical picture. For other people, <laughs> we don't think of God as judge at all. That's also a distorted view of him. God is the strange thing. There's no one else like him. He is both the lawgiver and judge and the source of our mercy. He's both together. That's the balanced view. The Lord whom we have offended is our Redeemer. That's strange. It's the balance. So we come back to it. Do you know your sin? Do you know, do, are you familiar? Are you well acquainted with the uncomfortable problem of your own shortcomings before him? That, that wrestle, it shows... It shows that you fall short of God's perfection. It's meant to be uncomfortable. Up to this point, nothing really has gone wrong. In our being uncomfortable, that's the right response. Because if it was not for grace, we would all stand condemned. That's fine, so long as we then move on to the next path. This part of the Bible and everything we've just been hearing for ages is telling us that you can be forgiven. That your wrongs can be made right, not by you 
by someone else. That you can be restored. That you can be redeemed. That you can be included. That you can be welcome. That you can be reconciled to the God who made you. That's the solution to the problem. God himself is he's offering himself to you. He's very committed to this plan. Okay, we, we know living the side of the history. We've just spent five sermons talking about it, about the cross and just what it is that Jesus has done for us in our place. And so now we have to stop and it's time to hear the call and not just to understand these facts, but to accept the invitation, to let him in, to let him do the thing that he's been trying to do, to invite Jesus in and to experience these things, not just know them. To get to there, there is a painful moment which is unskippable, sadly. It's the next part of the psalm, verse 5. Do you want to escape from the desert? I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. We'll stop there. like the psalmist, like David. We've got to do this. This is, this is what we did when we first became Christians, if we become a Christian, right? You, you, you laid yourself out before God and you said, God, I fall short. I need a saviour. Rescue me. But that's not, that's not a once-off experience in the life of a Christian. We do this again and again and again throughout the life of faith. We make a habit of it. The psalmist, who is a believer, has been stuck in that place of guilty anguish and has grown tired of ineffective solutions to the problem with conviction. And now, finally, as if it's the last possible resort, my strength wasted away. Okay, now I'm finally ready to do the one thing that will help. I've tried everything else. Let's try just admitting it and talking to God. He relents. He gives up on self-righteousness. He gives up on self-justification. He turns to face God. Father, I acknowledge my sin to you. I agree with you. My sin is sin. I have fallen short. I did not cover my iniquity. No more, no more making excuses. No more pretend coverings. No more fig leaves. Like that, that's going to do it, isn't it? Fig leaves. That solves all problems. I will confess my transgressions. And that's the, that's the painful moment. That's, that's the scariest thing in the whole world. Do you know what I'm talking about? What response was he expecting in that moment? There is a voice, isn't there? Despite what we, what we know to be true, there is a niggling doubt. I call it a hell-born lie. That tells us that when we turn to God, because he is our judge, and he really is, that what we are going to encounter from him is judgment. We have fallen short of his, of his will revealed in his word. We have broken his law. We have acted differently than he would act. We are not like him. We have deceived and lied and stolen and harmed. We have stayed silent when we should have spoken up. We have spoken when we should have stayed silent. We have done these things. And we worry. There is something in us that believes that when I finally admit to God what God already knows to be true, I think about it long enough. Yeah, I'm a screw-up. I, I don't. I'm not. I am not self-sufficient. I would really like to be. 
but I'm not. We worry that God's going to be like, told you so. Get out of here. Don't show your face around here again. That's what we're worried about. And it's so very important that we understand that that is not what is going to happen. (laughs) That's not how it works. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, says the psalmist, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. That's the end of it. That's what will happen. That is what you will experience tonight if you come before God in confession and repentance. That's the only possible outcome. Do you need to experience that moment today? Have you been in the desert, the, the, the agony of hiding? Have you been running from God? Have you been keeping him at arm's length? Have you been, is, is your prayer life dry? Because you know that if you speak to him, you'll have to speak about this. Or if you don't speak about this, that you're just pretending. And so you're not really, you're not really commuting with him. Right? Isn't it a strange thing that confessing our sin to one who already knows it intimately is so frightening and so humiliating? And yet at the same time, that pain is immediately followed when we do it by the greatest joy and sense of freedom and being clean and being new that we ever experience in this life. And any one of you who is a Christian already, you've experienced this before. I'm not telling you something that you don't know. My happiest days on this earth were the ones where I finally admitted it and confessed my sin to God. The rest of that day, the rest of that week, the rest of that month, so glad that that weight finally came off my shoulders of free. And yet having experienced that lesson a thousand times, it's still the hardest thing in the world to do. I don't want the pain of being exposed. I prefer comfortable, dangerous, soul-destroying, hiding excuses to genuine restoration. Maybe you're like me. What comes next is really good advice. (laughs) And I really need to hear it. Verses 6 and 7. Therefore, because this is true, do you understand? Because when we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins. Because that is true. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Here's your two options. Surrounded with shouts of deliverance from God himself. Do you understand? Get your head around that picture of the certainty of the grace that God is offering to you here and now. Today is the day for you to receive and accept and enter into that invitation to let him in, to be restored. The period of grace Hear this, the period of grace will not last forever. The, the, the rush of great waters mentioned here harkens back to the time of Noah when the flood came. Though his neighbors had been warned for years as Noah publicly built the ark, they had every opportunity to change their mind about God and get on the boat. Do you see what he's saying? Then the day came when the waters came and, and the opportunity was, was closed. Grace will not last forever. There's a sense where grace will not last forever. A day is coming when the offer of God's mercy ends. For us, that will be either on on the day that we die, 
and we are left with the consequences of whatever decisions we have made about what to do with Jesus, or it will come when Jesus returns. From that day onwards, people's eternal position, it's, it's locked, it's, it's, it's not changing. But today, there is an offer of mercy. There is an offer of grace. We have, we have not only been warned, but we've been invited. And so, choose common sense. Choose sanity. And accept God's grace. Today is the day. Today is the day for you to turn to God and to confess your sin and to uncover your iniquity before Him. And as a result of doing that difficult, shameful, painful, scary thing, to experience redemption, mercy, love, restoration, not judgment. We really do have a choice to make, which is between receiving the judgment our sins deserve or receiving mercy beyond what we deserve. So choose mercy and choose it now. Stop hiding. It's good advice, isn't it? The psalm comes to a conclusion. I, I like this. I found this really helpful. Verse 8. This, this eats me. Uh, so good. I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curved with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but the steadfast, lo- uh, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. I read that four times today and got it wrong every single time, that one sentence. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous. Shout for joy, all you upright in heart. You hear that picture in there about horses? I found this really helpful. Um, people's, people's knowledge of horses these days is not what it used to be. Understand? We don't engage with them as often as we used to. Apparently, when I read this, what it teaches me is that the Hebrews were not phenomenal with horses. Like People who are good with horses today would read this and be like, amateurs. <laughs> How do you control a horse which isn't particularly willing? And the answer throughout history has been with, with bit and bridle, right? It's, it's the, if you don't know what that is, it's the stuff that goes on the horse's head. It's, it's the thing around the head, and, and the bit is the metal bar. It's literally just a piece of metal that people put into the mouth of a horse. It sticks out behind their teeth, pulling their cheeks like this. And that is how you steer a horse. Right? It's like the whole, the whole point of the bit is I, I pull on this side, and it's easier for the horse to turn its head than to deal with the pain of having something pulling on its face. And in, even though I'm not as strong as a horse... I'm pulling, I'm pulling its cheeks. And so he's like, ah, that, that sucks. And where the head goes, the horse goes. That's how you steer a horse. That's how it works. David here explains a horse as an animal, a horse or a mule, as an animal which will not come near you. Have you ever tried to catch a horse in a paddock? One that's not very well tamed, I should say, because good horses will come right up to the fence and you can give them an apple and they're cute. Have you, like, what, I, this, I didn't say this this morning. When I was in high school, I, I did a TAFE course in horsemanship. It makes me sound like such a hick when I say it out loud. I totally did. I totally did. And the thing is, if, if you want to talk about tame, friendly horses that will come up to you, TAFE horses are not them. Okay? The horses that we were riding was like, next stop, dog food. Right? That, was, that was all they were good for. This, once again, not a joke. <laughs> those, those horses were just like this. You walk into the paddock to catch the horse, and you've got to pull all these tricks. You're like, here's the food. I'm hiding the thing behind my back. trying to make sure. Gotcha. An animal that will not come near to you unless it has been mastered. And then when it's finally time to, to ride the horse, 
you got the thing on its head, you got the bit on, you're good to go. Unless the horse is smarter than you, and there's trees and bucking and all the things that can happen. The psalmist is saying, that's option A. You can be like that with God. You can be like a horse or a mule with no understanding that won't come near you unless you put a bit of leather in it on its head and a bit of metal in its mouth and dominate it. That's one way to do it. Don't be like that, says the psalmist. Not with God. Don't, don't go to God in that way. Rather, go willingly, go on your own two feet, go gladly. Why would we do that? Because many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. And so we have the good sense to walk towards love, to walk towards restoration, to walk towards forgiveness. Be smarter than a dumb horse. And they are dumb. Feel that? Today's the day. Today's the day for your hiding to end. What, like as, 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 you've sat, as you've sat here for the last however many weeks as we've, we've walked through our series on the cross, you haven't just been hearing a set of nice ideas. You have been hearing the invitation of the, the Lord God Most High saying, come and experience it. This is yours. I, I, like I, I have done this for you. Come, get it. Come and feast at the banquet table of grace. Come and experience forgiveness and reconciliation and restoration and freedom and inclusion. Come be close to me and I'll be close to you and I will surround you with shouts of deliverance. How we're going to respond to that tonight is three ways. First, we'll do this together. Um, I've got a, a corporate prayer of confession. And if, if you're willing, you can, you can pray this with me out loud. We'll say it together as a way of confessing our sin to God together as a church. Uh, and then Jesse and Luce are going to come and they're going to lead us in worship. But during that time, there's two more things that you could do. One is this. Just to stay sitting where you are rather than doing what the rest of us are doing. And to pray to God and just finally, finally do business with Him. Finally, finally relent. Finally give up on self-righteousness. And receive Christ's righteousness. Just confess your sin to Him. Option three, it's just like option two. Except it involves someone else. If you want, that's easy mode, right? If you want to do it in a hard mode, grab one of your brothers or sisters here at church. Can I pray with you, please? I've got some stuff to confess. And I say it out loud to one of your brothers and sisters. Why would we do that? It seems unpleasant because God has told us it's a good idea. But there's something, there's something about confessing your sin not just to God but to another human being which makes it profoundly sincere, I think is what it is. I have nothing to gain from losing my reputation and telling you this about me. And I'm just I'm wanting to demonstrate to God how sincere my confession. I think that's what it's about. We're going to pray together. We're going to worship together. You can take your, your, your time in the rest of the service to confess to God or to confess with one of your brothers or sisters. Sound good? Why don't we read this prayer together? I think it's pretty good. I pilfered it from some random Presbyterian church website. I really liked it. If you, do, if you do an internet search for corporate prayers of confession, Baptist churches don't come up for some reason. It's, we're, not, we're not so much into that. Would you pray with me? We'll say this out loud together. Almighty God, we acknowledge and confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. 
we have not loved you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We have not loved our neighbor as ourselves. Deepen within us our sorrow for the wrong we have done and the good we have left undone. Lord, you are full of compassion and gracious, slow to anger and plenteous in mercy. There is always forgiveness with you. Restore to us the joy of your salvation. Bind up that which is broken. Give light to our minds, strength to our wills, and rest to our souls. Speak to each of us and let your word abide with us until it has wrought in us your holy will. 